Our second reading is from the first letter of John. This is the message we've heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him, while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but for the, also for the sins of the whole world. The word of the Lord. great to be with you again. I was uh, so delighted when Johnny sent me an email asking if I'd be able to preach this particular Sunday. I looked at my calendar and it was open and I was so glad. And then I looked at the passage that he asked me to preach on and I noticed that it's all about sin. And I thought, there's some, there's some good valid reasons there. Uh, I could see why he might want that. Uh, I, I pictured uh, Johnny and Corky having sort of a word association game there. Sin, Randy, uh, which is entirely appropriate. I also wondered if they called my wife, said, we're thinking about having Randy. What would be a good topic that he's well-versed in? And uh, that would probably be high up on our list. I'm really glad they didn't, that they didn't call my sons. You'd be listening to a sermon about demon possession, probably. So I'm... Uh, I'm grateful to talk about sin. Uh, I, I, if we're honest, this is a topic we all need help on, isn't it? This is, if we're really honest with ourselves, this is a topic we're actually more familiar with than we would care to admit. Uh, you've just finished a series from <clears throat> excuse me, the book, the, the Gospel According to John, where John uh, had a series of episodes that you saw that all pointed toward that purpose statement at the end of the Gospel where he said, I write these things so that you may know that Jesus is the Messiah and that believing in him you might have life in his name. And so um, many people through the centuries, many thousands, perhaps millions, have come to faith by reading that book and hearing those stories and hearing about Jesus the Messiah. And then many people who have embrace this faith have perhaps some have thought, well, now that I'm a Christian, I'm done with all that sin stuff. It probably won't happen anymore. That lasts for a very short time. And then people start saying, well, no, wait a minute. What, 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 how do I deal with this sin? How do I think about this? How can I get set free from it? And so John wrote uh, these letters toward the end of the New Testament, particularly this first one, 1 John, where he addresses those common, very, very basic foundational issues that we never outgrow, that we always need to keep learning and relearning and remembering. And in this passage that was read in chapter 1, verse 5, through the second verse of chapter 2, he tells us some, some wrong ways to deal with sin and to think about sin, but he also tells us some right ways. 
Um, Take a look at verse 5. This is the backdrop for the whole thing. Before he even starts talking about sin, he sets the frame of of how we should even think about sin, and we need to think about it in light of God being the God who is light. It says, God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. And so we're not, we don't have to struggle with, well, now, is that a sin or isn't it? The standard by which we're told what is sin is the very character of God himself. Sin is anything and everything that goes against God's light, God's character, God's goodness. Sin is anything that does not stand up to the light. When you shine the light of God's character and his truth and his holiness and his righteousness, anything that falls short is sin. Sometimes it shows up as very active rebellion, telling God, I don't need you, I'll be my own God. Sometimes it's taking something that's actually very good, a gift from God, but exalting it higher than God. So it could be your job or your family or your spouse or or anything that's actually a good thing, but we tend to say that's the center of the universe, not God. And so sin comes in all sorts of different forms, but we don't have to wonder what is sin if we just look at the character of God and look at what he said. By the way, it's really important. Um, It's probably not a good idea to try to figure out what is sin based on what our culture says, right? That keeps changing rather dramatically. Things that not all that long ago were considered sinful are now kind of okay, no problem. And there's some things that not all that long ago were considered good and good for society now is seen as bad for people. And that just keeps shifting and changing. It changes from culture to culture. Uh, And to make things worse, um, we have an amazing ability to rationalize within ourselves. So we can't look to our culture. We can't even look to ethnic uh, identity. We certainly shouldn't look within. The prophet Jeremiah says our heart is desperately wicked. We have an amazing ability to rationalize. I know this because I have something in my home called a remote control. And it is amazing how many times I, yeah, this is a good use of time. Uh Uh-huh, yeah. Well, there's nothing good on the way up, but I bet on the way back down it'll be really good. Yeah, Uh uh-huh. And sometimes I land on diners, drive-ins, and dives. You know that show? Yeah, that's, yeah, definitely a third piece of cheese on that burger. Uh Uh-huh, yeah. And deep fry it. Yes, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, my cholesterol levels go up just watching the show. We desperately need a standard by which to determine what is right. And the standard that doesn't change, that is clear, is that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. So then John goes on to give us, well, okay, so now we see what is the standard of right and righteous and holiness and goodness We know what would be good for us and what would be bad for us. But then how do we deal with it? How do we handle it when we do things that we would rather not have done? Or we're tempted and we go, I probably should. No, I'm going to do that anyway. How, How do we think about that? Where do we go? And I believe John gives us three wrong ways to deal with the problem and then three right ways. And the first way, I believe, is looked at in verse 6. Take a look at verse 6. He says, If we say that we have fellowship with him while we walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. I think he's saying a wrong way to deal with sin is to think that it's really not that bad, to think that it's harmless, it's consequenceless. It really doesn't hurt our relationship with God. God loves me. 
Well, it is indeed true that God loves us. But sin hinders our fellowship with God, our relationship with God. Sin causes a rift between us so that it's difficult to hear his voice. It's difficult to to be sensitive to his leading. He says, um, uh, if we walk in darkness. By the way, some of us say, well, well, there's always sin in my life. I'm always. I mean, are you saying that I can never connect with God? The phrase walk in darkness, John uses, is that it is a habitual pattern. It's, it's, It's you've settled into that. And so for people who do, they well, it doesn't really matter. It doesn't make a difference. That's the wrong way to handle it. Uh, another part of this um, wrong way of thinking that it's harmless is to think that it's only me. It's just my individual. It's just, it, it's just me. It doesn't hurt anybody else. Um, but look what he says in verse 7. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, and you would expect him to say, we have fellowship with God. But he doesn't say that. Now, certainly he implies that, but he says, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from sin. See, sin messes up our relationship with God. It also messes up relationships with other people. Uh, The idea that we could do something and it only affects us as an individual, it doesn't affect people near us, people far away from us, family, friends. It doesn't create tension. That's a very, very modern American idea. The vast majority of the world and the vast majority of people who have lived in the history of the human race didn't think that way. That's a very modern American kind of thinking. Well, I can just uh, engage in this particular sin. It's just in my mind I could think this way. But no, it starts affecting the way you think and the way you treat people and the way you interact with people. And so when we walk in the light, we have fellowship with one another. It is a, there is a social dimension to our sin that we need to not uh, dismiss. This is bad, isn't it? Um, it gets better toward the end, but John wants to make sure that we're feeling the gravity of this, the sense of how bad this is, because we live in a society that is constantly bombarding us with message after message that it's okay to do these things. In fact, it's good to do these things. But he gives us then a second way to deal with sin. Uh, that's, That's a wrong way. The first wrong way is to think that it's harmless. The second is to deny it. And he says it two different ways, but they're coming at it from two different angles, but they're really similar in verse 8 and verse 10. In verse 8, he said, if, if we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And then verse 10, if we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Um, they may be really the same thing or just two sides of the same coin, but one aspect could be, um, if we say we have no sin, that means I, I'm just not that kind of person. Oh, I, I don't have that kind of nature. I'm not a sinful person. And then the second one is if I have not sinned that particular sin. So the first one is I'm not that bad. And the second one is that really wasn't that bad. But in fact, uh, that's denying the reality of what God says about it. God says it is bad. It messes up relationship with God. It messes up relationship with people. It's not what you were created for. It's not the goodness that God has in mind. Um, one of my uh, favorite songwriters is uh, a Christian named uh, Michael Kelly Blanchard. Maybe some of you know his uh, music. This is a, a section of a song he has about confession of sin. 
He says, uh, he writes these lyrics. Most of our life we bleed from a knife that cuts from the inside out. We push down the lid, keep the scars hid, act like we haven't a doubt. But now and again a memory slips in of a moment that filled us with shame when we could have or should have, in retrospect would have, but didn't, and that's really quite plain. Somewhere on the journey we need to get quiet, turn off the comfort of noise, confess what we've done and not try to deny it to the maker of all girls and boys. I love that line about the comfort of noise. It's amazing how noise can just protect you from really thinking deeply about anything. And it can also help you stay away from confession of sin. Um, C.S. Lewis said something somewhere in one of my notes. Here we go. Um, uh, C.S. Lewis wrote about the difference between forgiveness, asking forgiveness and making excuses. Uh, listen to what he said. Um, He's just being honest. I think that's what we need to do. Instead of denying, oh, I'm not that kind of person, instead of denying I didn't really do those things, if we're really honest, this is is his observation. I find that when I think I'm asking God to forgive me, I am often in reality, unless I watch myself very carefully, I'm asking him to do something quite different. I'm asking him not to forgive me, but to excuse me. But there is all the difference in the world between forgiving and excusing. Forgiveness says, yes, you have done this thing, but I accept your apology. I will never hold it against you, and everything between us two will be exactly as it was before. But excusing says, oh, I see that you couldn't help it. You didn't mean it. You weren't really to blame. Listen, he says, if one was not really to blame, then there's nothing to forgive. In that sense, forgiveness and excusing are almost opposites. If you had the perfect excuse, you wouldn't need forgiveness. If the whole of your action needs forgiveness, then there's no excuse for it. So when we're confessing sin, when we're coming to this point where we're being honest and real about it, um, we need to make sure that we're not adding explanations. Well, yes, I did lose my temper, but, you know, I I didn't have a good night's sleep. Yeah, I said those words to that guy, but, you know, I mean, he, he kind of deserved it. Uh, and on and on it goes. I think it's wonderful that as a church, we uh, have every week in our uh, service a time of confession of sin. Um, we, we used to go to, uh, my wife and I used to go to a church where they didn't do that, ever. <laughs> I, I know some of you are shocked. Really? You didn't confess sin? Why'd you go? No, sorry, that's different. But... Um, uh, and then we were there for, I don't know, eight or nine years, and then the Lord led us to another church that, like Christ Church Vienna, had a time of confession of sin. And I remember arriving early at the church and seeing, you know, the order of service and said, confession, confession? Well, there's a novel idea. And, um, and uh, so that when we got to that point, the person leading uh, said, I'm going to give you a few moments to just silently confess your sin, and then we'll read the prayer together. <laughs> Uh, so, uh, you know, we had, uh, I don't know, 30 seconds. And then he said, now let's join together. And I thought, wait, wait, wait a minute. I need more time. I'm, I'm out of practice. Uh, an hour perhaps might be helpful. Um, no, it's, it's really important to come together and have that time of confession. Not, by the way, the hope would be that that's not the only time of confession you have during the week. Um, but that as a regular thing, that would be part of your honesty with God. Which leads us to the first of the right ways to handle sin. Uh, The wrong way is to think that it doesn't really matter. And a second wrong way is to deny it. The third way is to confess it. 
And that's what he says in verse 9. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. This is both a description, I think, of what it means to become a Christian in the first place and then what it means to live as a Christian on an ongoing basis. Isn't, isn't that what it means to become a Christian? You come to that point where you realize, wait a minute, I'm not good enough. I'm not righteous. Um, even, if, even if I could figure out a way to tip the scales, outweigh the good with the bad, uh, uh, I may not look that good. I don't even know. And so you get to that point where you say, no, 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 I, I need a savior. Uh, I, I need, I, I don't have the goodness. That's what becoming a Christian is all about. And that's also what it means to be a Christian. We are an ongoing confessing people. So uh, you should know a few things about these uh, words. Uh, the word confess means to say the same as. Uh, when we confess, we say the same thing about our sin that God says. We agree with him. God says it's sin, we say it's sin. God says it's wrong, we say it's wrong. God says we should turn from it, we say we'll turn from it. God says that's why Jesus died. And that's what we say as well. Notice he also says he's faithful and just. Why does he say that? Well, if we've come to that point where we've trusted in what Jesus has done for us on the cross, then God is faithful to say that that is payment for, for your sin. He's faithful. He'll honor his, honor his word that says he'll forgive you. And he's just in that he won't require double payment. Have you ever thought of that? The fact that God is just means that the payment has already been paid on Jesus. And so the payment does not need to be paid by your behavior. He's faithful and he's just. Um, you know, we could, we could slip into thinking that uh, something else other than the death of Jesus is what pays for our sin. We, we can even get to the point where we think our confessing is what pays for our sin. Or we could sometimes think, okay, I confess the sin, and then, all right, from now on, though, it's, you know, better performance. As if then uh, Jesus started the process, but now we have to pay for our sin. Um, my, my wife told me uh, that she was at a uh, uh, physical therapy appointment. You should all go, oh. Because um, uh, if you've ever been to a physical therapy appointment, you know that PT really stands for physical torture. Uh, but, um, and so there was an assistant uh, helping her through some excruciating exercises. And, you know, people in the, in the medical profession, they always like to chat with you about something else to distract you so that you don't feel the pain. It doesn't really work, but that's what they do. And so um, uh, the, the assistant, the tech, was asking my wife what she was going to be doing that weekend. Well, she was going on a retreat, and she was going to be giving this talk about guilt and shame. How's that for a smooth conversation while physical therapy? Um, and, uh, uh, well, so, but the, the, the therapist said, oh, I, actually, I, I spoke at my church not too long ago about the same kind of topic, about, about confessing sin and dealing with uh, guilt and shame. Oh, no kidding. So he got into this conversation. And, and then he said, yeah, and, you know, and one of the points I said is, you know, you can, you can come to God and confess the sin, but you better not come back and confess the same thing again. And then he had to go treat another patient. And my wife said, wait, no, 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 that's not, that's not, that's not right. 
but that is how some of us think of it, isn't it? Okay, all right, all right, I've confessed it, and yes, Jesus paid for it, but now, come on. Well, we do want to turn from the sin, but we must always remember that the basis of our forgiveness is Jesus' death on the cross. That's why it says he's faithful and just. So, um, a wrong way, think that it's not really all that big a deal. Another wrong way is deny it. A right way, a good way is to confess it. Here's a third wrong way. Um, It's just accept it. It's okay. That's the way we are. Take a look at uh, chapter 2, verse 1. Yes. Um, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. That's exactly the opposite of what we would have thought, I think. He's just told us how wonderful it is to confess our sin, and he's faithful and just to forgive us our sin. And oh, by the way, he also says that that confession cleanses us. It has, it has a transforming effect. It has a cleansing effect, not just in our standing before God, but actually in our experience. And so it would be tempting to think um, that he would say, I write this to you so that you'll relax and take it easy. Don't get all worked up about it. Come on, nobody's perfect. It's inevitable. Um, this is very popular in our world today. People feel... Um, uh, very quick to say, well, yeah, 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 I do that. Yeah, that's right. But at least I'm not a hypocrite, frequent addition. Uh, but you know, there are things that are worse than being a hypocrite. <laughs> uh, I've experienced them. Um, and in fact, if I understand the Bible correctly, we're all hypocrites to a certain extent. We all say, no, nobody should do that. And then we do that very thing. So when people sometimes accuse us of saying, you know, well, I think you're just being a hypocrite, I want to quickly say, oh, that's just the beginning. It gets far worse than that. (laughs) But in our day today, um, we have settled for a kind of distortion of understanding of grace. And grace is, in, in the common thinking, oh, you're just like that. It's okay. Don't be a phony. Be honest. Um, there's a, a blog that I read uh, quite regularly on the Gospel Coalition. I need to organize my papers better. There we go. Uh, this is by a woman named Jen Wilkin, and she says that um, it used to be that people had this idea that Christianity was just this list of do's and don'ts, checklist Christianity. And people said, no, that's really not Christianity, and that's correct. But we've swung it now to the, well, it's just grace. It's just grace. It's just grace. And we use this word grace in this very, very strange way. And we don't really understand God's law of his rules, and we don't really understand grace. She writes, as a response to this distorted view of law, some have begun to articulate a distorted view about grace, one that discounts the necessity of obedience to the moral precepts of the law. I call this view celebratory failureism. Yep, I blew it. I'm a failure. We're all failures. We're all a mess. And that's where it ends. But what we want to say is, but look at what God's grace has done for me. See, John writes, I write this so that you may not sin. There's supposed to be something about the confession of sin. There's supposed to be something about the realization that Jesus died for our sin that melts us and molds, remolds us. 
It's like what Paul wrote in Titus. He said, the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. God's forgiveness is supposed to woo us so that we say, I want to be more like him. I want to turn away from those things that mess up my relationship with him. Fellowship with him is so wonderful and so sweet. I want to avoid the things that pull me away. So there's a second right way of dealing with sin. I know some of you say, why couldn't you have just done three and three? That would have been easier to take notes. And, and uh, I know that, but that's kind of not the way the passage goes. So I thought I'd go with the passage. So, but I'll review, I promise. So uh, wrong ways of to think that it really isn't all that big a deal or to deny it or to say it, uh, it, it's just, you know, we just accept it. And there's a right way of confessing it. There's also the right way of turning from it. We already looked at it in verse 7 where he says, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. So the confession of sin is supposed to bring the sin before us and say, no, I want to turn away from that. Here's what it does to me. Here's what's really underneath the surface. That's why I want to turn away from it. But in verse 9... He also calls that unrighteousness. Do you see it? If we confess our sins, he is faithful to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's not right. It's not good. It's not what we need. It harms us. It is not the way God created us to be. And then he gives us a third right way. This is the most complex Um, but it's really important for us to grasp it. Look at the end of verse 1 in chapter 2 and then verse 2. Some pretty heavy words here. He begins, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. What this verse is saying is that we have an advocate before God and we have a a sacrifice that pays for our sin. Um, It's a bit complicated. Let me try to unpack it a little bit. He says we have an advocate. We have one who pleads on our behalf. Jesus is our defense attorney who comes before uh, God the Father. And, And it's very important for you to imagine what he does not say. He does not say, okay, so here you are, here you are, right here before God the Father, the judge, and here you are. And Jesus does not say, oh, come on, give him a break. She didn't really mean it. He's basically a good guy. I mean, look at the overall big picture. No, what he says is, I paid for his sin. You can't punish her because I've already been punished in her place. That's the advocate on our behalf saying it is my blood shed for you that sets you free before a holy, righteous God. And then, he, and then the reason he can say that is because, in fact, he did pay for our sin. That's what that fancy word propitiation means. I know it's a word. Couldn't they have come up with a different word that would be uh, English? Um, well, see, the problem is um, 
it's, it's really hard to find an exact English word for this, this Greek concept and this biblical concept, and that should tell you something. Our society has such a hard time, our language has a hard time coming up with the fact that God's wrath would be poured out on somebody else in our place. We don't quite know what the word is. And so different Bible translations try to come up with different words. Um, the ESV landed back where many translations had come with propitiation, which said, okay, I know it's a word that we don't really use all that often. Exactly, that's the point. Our sin is so bad, we need such a complicated word. And it's a word that means that God has every right reason to punish that sin. And he chose to punish it on Jesus. Your sin is bad enough that it's worthy of God's wrath. And your sin has indeed had God's wrath poured out on it, on him. Uh, I heard one uh, preacher talk about this uh, in in literature. Maybe you've even read it in some of your gospel and life uh, literature. Your sin is so bad, Jesus had to die for you. But his love is so great, he was glad to die for you. Here's another illustration. I heard this just a week ago from um, uh, a a, a leader connected with a ministry called Christianity Explored. Uh, Imagine uh, a magnifying glass. You all know magnifying glass? When you were little, uh, and some of you still are at this age where this is a great tool of torture, Um, if you hold it just the right way with all of the rays of sun pointing at that poor little leaf or something else, um, you could cause a fire. It's, it's as if all of, these, all of these rays of sun that are not hot enough to do uh, severe damage just by themselves all get concentrated through this magnifying glass, and then the heat is concentrated in such a way that it could start a fire. And this leader said, that's what it's like. All of our sin, all of people's sins, all of these sins, the hatred, the anger, the rage, the lust, the jealousy, the the mean-spiritedness is all connected and pointed through God's magnifying glass on Jesus. And he gets the concentrated ultimate payment for sin on him. He is our propitiation. And that is why he can be our advocate. And then John adds this little phrase there, and not only for ours, not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. This, this doesn't mean that everybody is automatically saved just because Jesus died. That would, go con- that would contradict everything John has said in, in all of his writings. It means that the sacrifice is so great that there is no one who's so bad that they can't benefit from that grace. No matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter how bad it has been, no matter how rebellious, the blood of Jesus is sufficient for your sin. And, and did you notice also he's called Jesus Christ the righteous? Um, Jesus has um, three roles in this very short period of, of, of a text. He's called the advocate, he's called the propitiation, he's called the righteous one. The only reason he can be our advocate is because he is our propitiation. And the only reason he could be our propitiation is because he's our righteous one. He had no sin of his own so he could pay for our sin and therefore he can offer that as defense to God before us. And oh, by the way, isn't it beautiful that John reminds us of this by telling us this with my little children. So very often when we think about sin, we think of somebody being angry at us and and scolding us. You shouldn't have done that. 
The very fact that we're coming to confess our sin, of course I know I shouldn't have done that. And so God, John wraps this up in that phrase, my little children. Um, I, uh, Corky mentioned I'm involved with campus ministry. I've been involved with a research project for the last um, almost two years now. I've been interviewing college students who have become Christians within the last two years to hear their stories, to hear what worked, what, what kinds of community, what kinds of ideas, what kinds of written things made a difference in their lives. Forty uh, interviews, at least 45 minutes to an hour. Beautiful, wonderful stories. Sad, tragic stories. Painful stories. One of my favorites um, was a young woman who told for the first 30 minutes of the interview horror story after horror story of being raised in a cult that was abusive and just horrific. And so when she was 17 years old, she, she ran away from home. And when she told me that, my first thought was, well, good for you. But then she started saying what happened then. As a young, attractive woman of 17 years of age, living in different places, she was treated by people in horrible, terrible ways. And then she herself engaged in things that she was now ashamed of drugs and drinking and all sorts of immorality, terrible things. And uh, somehow she got into a very good college and she met a group of Christians and they started befriending her and they started telling her about Jesus and she wanted nothing to do with crazy religious people because she thought they were all like the cult that her parents were in. And then she um, started seeing that, no, they were different, and their ideas were different, and their teachings were different. She started getting in a Bible study, and she started hearing about Jesus dying to pay for sins, and she thought it was a crazy concept. But she had to find out more, and she met every single week with a campus minister, asking question after question after question. And after a year of wrestling with it, she said, this is, this is too good to be true. And she was sitting outside at this uh, Starbucks telling me this story, and she, she was having trouble putting the sentences together. And she said, when I think of all the stuff that I've done, when, when I think of how badly I have messed up my life, and then it was as if she had this next phrase memorized. She said, when I know that I am totally and wholly forgiven. And she couldn't finish the sentence. And then she wiped away tears and she took a deep breath. She said, the word gratitude doesn't even begin to describe it. That's the Savior we have, Jesus Christ the righteous. Isn't that wonderful news? It's the most wonderful news in the world. So the third right way, somebody was saying he didn't say it, the third right way, um, uh, we don't deny it, we confess it, we turn from it, and we worship the one who paid for it. So let me begin our time of worship of that aspect as we move toward our celebration of communion in prayer. Let's pray. Jesus Christ, you are indeed the righteous one. You paid for our sin and you defend us by your blood. We ask that you would help us grasp this in such a deep way that our lives would be a constant response to that in worship and praise and adoration. May it be that when we see the ugliness of sin in our life, we don't deny it, 
We don't excuse it. We don't accept it. We see it for as hideous as it is. We turn from it. We confess it. And we rejoice that it's paid for by you. For we pray in your name. Amen. Okay.